the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. The drives one. We're back. It's the FSS Plus Podcast Future Stars Series with Joe Doyle. I'm Jason Churchill. Hey, we have an answer to the biggest question in baseball this winter, and that's Shohei Otani has chosen the Los Angeles Dodgers, and we're soon going to find out what the fallout of all of that is, including whether or not Otani is joined by a fellow countryman and where else the Dodgers fill out their pitching staff. In this episode of the podcast, Joe and I are going to discuss the price for Tyler Glass now. The farm effect of the Yankees trade package that got them Juan Soto a week and a half ago or so. And uh, and Joe's latest mock draft. Plus, if we have time, I want to talk about the Orioles uh, farm system. But, uh, Joe, what was your initial uh, reaction when you saw the Shohei Otani number? We haven't uh, we haven't talked on the air since that came out. $700 million. Ignore the deferred part, which may be even more incredible. But when you saw the $700 million, on a scale of one to ten, how surprised were you that that number was where uh, the Dodgers and Shohei landed? What's up, buddy? Good to be on another podcast. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I had prepared myself for the the number to have a five in front of it, mm-hmm. or for the number to potentially like the the universe of a six in the front of that number. Have per, <laughs> you know, it existed, but a seven, a seven hundred million dollar figure. I think the crazy thing is, you know, every year a guy tries to reset the market for the Players Association, uh, you know, as a starting point for the most valuable player in baseball. I can't imagine anybody's going to touch 700 million for the next decade. I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone's touching that. Yeah, I don't think so either. When you look at his potential, I know there's some question about whether, you know, he's going to pitch much moving forward. But uh, and there's some unknown with with the, the procedure that he had in the fall and and you know the expectation is that he's not going to pitch it all in 2024 at least but even if he were to get on the mound joe if he were to do his dh thing 140 times a year and get on the mound and throw 100 innings a year for five of those years i I gotta say even on the field i think that's worth 70 million dollars a year considering how effective he is when he's on the mound i think 100 innings a year for so 500 innings over the over the lifespan of that deal and 140 games a year for those 10 years, I think that's worth $70 million a year. I think that's worth the $700 million on the field, on the, on field. the field, on the really? field. I do. I absolutely do. That's what, a, that's what about, um, about 15 to that's probably more like 18 starts. Give him 18 starts a year. And, and I mean, and a, and by market value, years. by Ooh. market value, Jason, that, I mean, by market value, he has to get about nine F war per year. If we're just going off, market value like mm-hmm. eight and a half nine more per year i can't disagree with you from a ten thousand foot view for the value of the player because i do think like we have both repeated the value like Shohei otani is going to extract that value into the dodgers for years to come mm-hmm. from a global brand recognition marketing perspective but i don't know man i, I uh there was a 
there was a point, at least for me, where the numbers didn't make sense from an on-the-field perspective. And I don't know if he's gonna I don't know if he's gonna be a seven hundred million dollar player in terms of F war. You're you're banking on what are you banking on here? You're banking on fifty-eight to sixty. No, no, you're banking way more than that. You're banking on eighty F war, right? Mm, Over ten years. Maybe. Here's the thing. That changes all the time. And here's one of the factors that went into that for me was, do you remember where the market was in 2019 before the pandemic? Mm-hmm. It was nowhere near where it is now. So we went through the pandemic. 2021 did not reflect that we were even remotely through the pandemic because it didn't feel like we were no. um, heading into the 2022 season, uh, at least from a baseball standpoint and a market standpoint. Last year, we got back to uh, you know, you get, you get impact guys on the, you know, Trey Turner got 300 million. Correa was going to get 250 plus to $300 million. If his medicals were okay, judge got $300 million. Uh, one, we know Juan Soto is going to get 400 plus, maybe $500 million next winter. Uh, things just continue to move North. So over the next 10 years, I'm thinking inflation, I'm thinking inflation in value. I'm thinking there. inflation in, in pure dollars. And you look at last year. So he made 23 starts into 130 innings in 2023 he was worth exactly nine wins using the fan formula a year ago now i'm not saying he's gonna do that every year but when you consider inflation and what that's worth because that's a 50 to 60 million dollar free agent player what he did last year but when you True. think about what that's going to cost in two years and four years i mean that's pretty huge that's that's pretty huge and and that's just on the field, you know. I think it's gonna be worth the seventy million dollars a year. Where I and, and I said five years over the life of ten years. I think the back end of this is where you just worry: how good is he? Performance wise, how yeah. good is he? So if they can get seventy million a year out of him, you know, for five years, and he can get those five hundred innings in, uh, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna be worth that. I just I don't know what the, happens on the back end. I'll, t- I'll tell you the added value, the the opportunity cost value. I guess is the fact that you now essentially take up two roster spots with one player. So you you get an extra bench player who could provide you mm-hmm. one F war. And then, sure. you know, all of a sudden, maybe if you use it by that measure, Shohei Otani only has to get you seven war per sure. year over the over the 10 years. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, he's just the thing with Shohei is like he's such an explosive mover. And you kind of look at these these now two TJs and, you you know, you hope that you hope that his body isn't breaking down. I, I'll be interested to see whether or not the Dodgers even play with the idea whatsoever of putting him in the field. Yeah, in, yeah, in 2024, I doubt it's going to be an option in 2025. With because he's obviously recovery. athletically capable of that, and always was. It was just a way to protect him, right? Like that was the yeah. Idea I mean, the, the recovery from running around in the outfield, you know, once or twice a week, and pitching is is next to mm-hmm. impossible. I would say, but. You know, everything that we've said about this guy seems impossible for the better part of the last six yeah. years. So <laughs> it will be interesting to see if they give him, you know, just a, a cup of tea in left or right field at some point. Probably, yeah. well, it would have to be somewhere where the arm isn't tested. So it might have to be first base. Yeah. In, in 2024, we're probably not going to see that. I don't imagine they take that so. chance in 2024. Be, Although late, who knows? Although late, you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes we've seen guys. I remember Shinsu Chu came back pretty quickly from having uh, Tommy John and played the field, but that would risk his is the pitching portion of it for the next year. So I, I, I doubt we see that for 2024. But again, like you said, Otani's a different, he's a different guy. He's the unicorn. Yeah. And that might as well apply for everything we're talking about with him. Yeah. So uh, 
uh, interesting. Yeah. So Tani lands. Uh, we'll see how uh, the rest of the market fills out. It sounds like Yamamoto could be next, uh, but it also sounds like the market for the rest of the guys in the uh, in the market, the top guys, the Cody Bellingers, the Matt Chapman, it's also heating up. And we're going to see some trades. I still think the Dodgers hold the key to a lot of stuff, Joe, and we're going to get to a little bit, a bit of that when we talk uh, Tyler Glass now. But I want to start out with your mock draft. Uh, mock draft 2.0 is up at futurestarseries.com. And the picks in this one are based on your model. It's a model you put together. And while that is explained a little bit in the piece, maybe start us off here uh, on the show, giving us kind of the gist of that model so people understand as we move through some of this, as we dive into some of these picks and why certain players landed where they did. What's that model about? What is that telling you? And how did you use it in this mock draft? Yeah, so without getting totally muddy and confusing here, I'll try and explain the order of operations. Uh, I have a board from 2018, 2019, 2020, all the way up to 2026 now. And for every player that has ever been listed or drafted, they're applied a trait. There, there, there's 50 or 60 traits to choose, for, choose from. Maybe it's uh, he can really spin it. He can, you know, big exit velos, low chase, high contact, uh, projectable pitching frame, low walks. Like there's so many different traits that I can apply to a player. And it's with a simple just X, just put the X in the box. Um, so what I did was for every team's last three drafts, which ended up being anywhere between seven and 12 players per team. I took the t- seven to 12 players that they drafted and I took the traits that those players possessed when they were drafted and I put them into basically a weighting uh, system. So if it was the number one trait within the team that they would look for, like if, if they drafted guys with spin more than anyone, like the White Sox, mm-hmm. then that received a 30 point weight on a hundred point scale. And then down to the fifth most selected trait in any uh, of these drafts, that would get a 10-point weight on the weighting scale. So 30, 25, 20, uh, 15, and 10 comes out to 100. What that ended up doing was it provided me a weighting system for every team on what they prefer, what their top five traits are in any given draft. And so usually a correlation between a player and a team for the 2024 draft ended up somewhere, if it was a strong correlation, um, in the 45 to 55, 60 range. And so basically, I, I just took whatever the top five traits were based on this system that I created. It's really crude, but um, and I applied it to whoever the best players available were left in my top 75 for the 2024 draft and compared it to those traits. And whoever had the highest score was the pick. And so that's why you see, you know, like I, like I mentioned, the, the Chicago White Sox were a pretty high correlation score. I think that actually ended up uh, I think Brody Brecht had like a 65 correlation score with the White Sox. If you go back and look at their last few drafts, they've taken Noah Schultz, Peyton Pallette, Grant Taylor, um, guys like that, guys with big spin, sweepy, like reliever-esque uh, floor profiles. And that's kind of what Brecht is. And so he was the pick there. There are other teams where where it made a ton of sense. Like if, if you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, The Cardinals' number one trait that they've selected in the top three rounds over the last few years has been power, exit Mm -hmm. velos, um, impact upside. And so because of that, Jack Caglione was second because of his massive power, but Charlie Condon has some of the best power in this class. He's a corner outfielder, which they received some weight on uh, from previous picks. 
Uh, and that's just kind of how we got to this point. So I think the lowest correlation score that I saw was 35, and that was like the Blue Jays or something like that. But generally, every player that was attached to a team had at least two or three traits in common with that with what that team has targeted in drafts in the previous three years, if that makes sense. And that's top to bottom. That's one through the bottom of uh, no. of, of the round is what you're saying? Had the two, yeah, so, had two, had so I would, two to three? Wow. I would rerun it. Um, I would rerun the model after eliminating the player that was pr- uh, picked prior to. So you couldn't take, you know, uh, the same player could never come up twice. It would skew the model. And this also would only go down. I mean, I've got 743 players on the 2024 board. I, I only use the top 75. And while that might not be fair to the players in the 75 to 200, 300, 400 range, because they could surge, um, it just seemed like if there was a stronger correlation to a player lower, it it doesn't mean that they're more talented. So um, sure. that's why yeah. I stuck with the top two round guys. Yeah, lots of... Uh... Lots of caveats in there, lots of context uh, in there uh, as well. So uh, as we go through a little bit of this, and we're certainly not going to touch on every every pick, but uh, there were there were a couple of interesting ones. I mean, talk to me about the, the top 10. Which picks in the top 10 or so were so dead on the model that it just made the selection really easy for you and theoretically for the club going through this this mock which ones in the top 10 stood out is just like this one was so easy because the model that the the weight the the score there at the end that you get was so strong and it was just like boom this is the guy yeah chase burns at number three to the colorado rockies was actually one of i think that was a 65 um i think they received yeah i think they received traits in the 30 25 and 10 buckets that all uh connected the team to chase burns um, now it's, it's interesting. I think Charlie Condon was actually also like a 60. So it was really, really close. But when, when I, when I siphoned it down to just 2022 and 2023 drafts, you know, the Rockies went with Chase Dolander, Sean Sullivan, Gabe Hughes, Jackson Cox, and those players all represent incredible similarity scores to what chase burns is and i you know just charlie condon came up as a close second in this pick but i looked at their farm and i said i'm going to call an audible here because they've got young keel fernandez they've got benny montgomery they've got jordan beck they've got serlin thompson they've got zach like they have Mm -hmm. a ton of outfielders on the way and i wanted to um provide something that's a little bit more recency bias than what Charlie Condon would have been. So that was an interesting one. And then I thought the second one that was uh, really quite interesting was, was the pick between uh, was the pick for the Washington nationals at 10. Um, so the nationals just hired Brad Selick away from the Orioles, uh-huh. which means it's almost a, a foregone conclusion. They're going to take a bat. <laughs> it's, it's, just one the the easy, it's one of the easiest, easiest ones in baseball, right? One of the easiest ones in baseball. And Mike Rizzo <laughs> loves a high school impact faller right? Brady House, Elijah Green, mm. whatever falls into his lap. Uh, if Connor Griffin's there at 10, I think this is kind of a slam dunk. Um, superstar tools uh, up to 96, 97 on the mound uh, with some kind of, um, I don't like using the word rawness, but some rawness in his offensive game. And I think you can kind of see that with Brady House and Elijah Green. Mm. This was a pretty high score as well. And, um, and I think this was a 55 or a 60. So I think this is a really, really good fit as well. I think some of the winners, like in this in this mock model draft, if Oakland had Travis Bazana fall into their lap at four, 
I mean, you look at some of their previous drafts mm-hmm. um, with with Henry Bolt and Jacob Wilson and Max Muncie and some of these just West Coast, you know, toolsy um, position players. <clears throat> like I think Bazana is right in there kind of right in their sweet spot. And I was, I was actually watching some film and it's the first time I think I've seen it. Travis Bazana could be Jason Kipnis. Like I really mm. came to the conclusion that he might be, uh, might be Jason Kipnis. I do want to add one thing. I mentioned that I called a slight audible for the, uh, for the, was it the Cardinals? The White no, Sox. For the, the White Sox. For the White Sox. With Burns, there yeah. were two other audibles that I called early. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was the Angels. And I got right. a lot of ire for this <laughs> on social media because they just, everyone thought it was lazy, which is fine. I understand, but hear me out. Um, the second closest correlation score here was Will Turner, which I thought was, so Will Turner didn't even get drafted in this draft, but he's maybe the most polished player in the class in terms of like extremely low chase rates, mm. uh, high contact rates up the middle. Like he's going to move fast. He's kind of got that move fast uh, profile. Um, I called an audible. I went with Jack Caglione. He was still on the board here. Um, and Mike Sirota made some sense too. But I went with Caglione because if you think about it rationally, how many teams are actually prepared to nurture a two-way player all the way up the system, sure. right? Mm-hmm. It, that's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard program to build. And I think, you know, I can think of a been- team that has experience doing that, Joe. I can think of that one team at least, right? That would be the and you know for for as rocky as it was, they did a pretty good job with him. I mean, look at what he's a, accomplished. Sure. But you look at a team like Tampa Bay who tried to do it with Brendan McKay, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see whether or not the Giants can do it with Reggie Crawford. Um, I just thought th- this would be a, a tremendous injection of positive PR for the Angels, and I think they would know how to handle this. So mm-hmm. that was one. And then the other one I wanted to bring up, and and then we'll move on. I called an audible at pick number nine for the Pittsburgh Pirates for, for Slade Caldwell. He's an outfielder, 5'9", mm-hmm. 181. Um, certainly unconventional, but they just hired Justin Horowitz away from the Boston Red Sox, and the Red Sox have been so incredibly contact hitter, up the middle high school player heavy. Like I, I, The number I pulled up, I'm trying to remember what it was, but uh, they haven't drafted a high school... Let me see. It was like Tanner Houck was the last pitcher <laughs> that they had drafted that wasn't a high school bat right. in the first round. That was like 2017. So um, I don't know. I think Slade Caldwell is going to end up a top 20 pick in this draft, and it may be a little rich for some people here at nine, but uh, he fits the Justin Horowitz, Boston Red Sox model better than just about anyone here uh, in the first round. Let me let me go back to the Angels at eight really quick. Um, you, you said uh, that that Will Turner was the the second closest correlation there, the the second closest match for the Angels. Uh, he's the the South Alabama outfielder. Um, what is Will Turner? I guess that's the big question for me because I, I have a really good idea of what kind of upside uh, Jack Caglione uh, brings to the table as a two way guy. Whether he ends up being a hitter only, like I I get that profile. Tell me what Will Turner is because to be honest with you, at the end of the day. That's what's going to tell me whether whether this pick makes sense to me or not, whether I'm an Angels fan or not. What is Will Turner? Yeah, Will Turner is a six foot two inch, hundred ninety pound left hitting, left throwing uh, center fielder out of South Alabama. He, 
had a, a chase rate under 15% this year. And while that was at South Alabama and he probably didn't see the greatest level of competition, mm-hmm. it's still pretty tough not to chase on pitches outside of the zone at any level. Sure. Um, pretty high contact rates. I would say it's probably below average to fringy power. It, you know, it's it's essentially the Nolan Shanuel uh, playbook here, but Will Turner is going to play center field, which I think is a really interesting player. So I, you know, ultimately not a lot of impact here. Like Will Turner is probably not going to be a role 55 player. He mm-hmm. might not be a role five player. Is this um, a Kevin Kiermaier? Is that what we're talking no. about here? No, no, no. It's not that level glove. It's probably a 55 glove in center. Uh, he's he's going to play center field for a good big league team in most cases. I'm trying to think of who a good Mm-hmm. A good um, a good example of him would be like, you know, maybe Jared Kelnick level defense in center field. That's not even a, it's a kind of a proximity bias there. Um, anyways, above average center fielder, um, above average to plus runner. He does a lot of things really, uh, really well in the grass and he's going to run a high OBP. He's going to probably run a 275, 280 average. He might hit 10 to 12 home runs and uh it's, you know, it's, it's probably a two to two and a half win player, which we've said over and over and over the last few years with the angels picks. And obviously they'd have the choice of anybody else on the board at that particular point in this scenario. Mm-hmm. But if it came down to, to Will Turner or, or the two way guy from Florida, like this is the number eight pick in the draft. And, and granted, it's not a great class. At least that's the way it looks right now. It's not necessarily the best class. But there's no chance I'm taking Will Turner here if I'm if I'm the Angels. Although we can look back at the last couple of of Angels first round picks, and I've been like, there's no chance I'm taking Shanuel in the first round here, and there's no chance I'm taking Meadow here in the first round. That at least that would have been my thought. Right. So they'll probably take Will Turner if that becomes the uh, uh, the norm. I wanted to get one more question before we move on. Uh, like you talked about your model, and you went back to I think you said 2018, and then and then move forward. What happens to your model? when uh because you have a nationals model and and but that's based on who's calling the shots there right like that's a gm scouting director combination that kind of moves forward with what they believe and they obviously work with their scouts and their data people and their analysts and all that and and that's how the model is that's how you develop the model based on you know the traits that they prefer and the history but when the history starts over because there are some guys getting promoted. The, the Miami Marlins just got a new scouting director, for example. Like the, now it starts over for the Marlins. Right now the model looks different for the Marlins in and in, in, in the correlations and in, in the uh, in that model that your confidence in the model for the Marlins might change because of who's at scouting director now versus who was before and who's at GM versus who was before because there's obviously been some changes. And I'm using Miami as the example because they have changes in, in both positions. Yeah, so I have boards going back to 2018, but mm-hmm. this model only takes into account 2021, 2022, and 2023. So it really only takes into account the traits of the top three to four players drafted uh, in those three drafts for each given team. Mm-hmm. And I really tried at least for teams that veered away from their old scouting department this year with someone new. And, and mm-hmm. you know, like for example, the Kansas City Royals just hired Brian Bridges as their new scouting director. Uh, Cam Caminiti just kind of fits what Brian Bridges and the Braves have always done. So I kept that pick. But the Nationals just hired Brad Selick. I called an audible there with Connor Griffin, even though it was a great fit already Mm -hmm. with uh, Mike Rizzo. The 
Pirates just hired uh, Justin Horowitz. I called an audible because I know what the Boston Red Sox like, how Justin likes to tick. So I went there. And then like with Miami, um, if we would have known that Franklin, uh, Frankie Pillier had, had left Seattle and gone to Miami to be their new scouting director, I certainly wouldn't have gone with what the model said and, and sent them a high school arm. But when you look at what they have done, for example, with Noble Meyer, Jacob Miller, Carson Milbrandt, Thomas White here over the last couple of years, that's what the model pointed to. I would expect the Miami Marlins to take a bat now in the first round. Um, but yeah, it, it just took into account the last three drafts, not going back to 2018. And only the picks that were selected inside the top 100 in the last three drafts uh, to build traits around. How much of what um, Pilier did in Seattle and how Seattle's drafts turned out can you just automatically transfer over to Miami here? Considering the scouting director has a lot of say here, but the general manager and other people in that front office have the final call on which direction they like to go and where they prefer, particularly high in the draft. How much of that can you transfer over from Seattle with, uh, with Miami stealing their assistant SD and making them their scouting director? Well, I mean, I would look at two things. They just hired the Mar- Marlins. Just hired Peter Bendix uh, from from the Rays. Uh, the Rays haven't taken high school pitching at all in the first couple of rounds, with the exception of Mick, uh, Nick Bitsko. And I look at it from a from a standpoint of, and that was in twenty twenty one. I look at it from like if if Peter Bendix is hiring Franklin Pillier to be the director of amateur scouting, they probably see eye to eye in philosophy in terms of where they want to go with their first couple of picks. The Rays have always gone. Uh, for position players with interesting traits in the first round. And so that's why I'm sure that uh, he and Pillier got got along. And I think mm-hmm. they're going to probably have a similar approach to the first couple of rounds. Sure. Sure. Them having similar, uh, well, at least crossover backgrounds uh, helps in a lot of ways as well. Uh, it's it's an odd time of the, I don't want to say odd. It's it's never a bad time to, to have a mock draft. Um, when you look back, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. We didn't talk about this. I don't think I've ever asked you this before. Have you ever looked back at a, at a mock draft you put up at Christmas time and compare it and and see how how much it changed and actually come up with like, well, it changed, you know, 75 percent. Like only 25 percent of the first rounders I had in December stayed first rounders in uh, in July or whatever. You ever done that? Because I'm curious. Like, you know, not how serious I should take this because this is a really interesting one based on the model. And it's going to tell us a lot and something we can kind of keep, you know, next to us. Bookmark this, kids. If you're out there and you're a Brewers fan or you're a- Don't bookmark this. Seriously, bookmark it. Um, No, you're going to get me canceled. No, no. Don't bookmark (laughs) it for the picks. Bookmark it for the model idea because, you know, like things are going to change. These players are going to change. Their data is going to change and therefore the model is going to spit out something different. But bookmark this- because it's going to remind people that teams do use models and they don't just scout a player and go, wow, this guy's a 70 runner and has 70 raw power. Let's get that dude. Like it's so much more complicated and deep than that. And I don't think a lot of casual fans really understand what goes into the draft. And I think a mock draft like this using models and attaching it to teams and their preferences uh, really, you know, educates, you know, people, including myself, you read over this and you learn what the brewers, you know, have done in the past and what they like to do. And, and, uh, it gives you a different perspective than certainly than if you hadn't seen one of these before, because this isn't the, this isn't your typical kind of mock draft. And a lot of times it's just how good are the players and what are the general tendencies, you know, for the Mets? Well, they, they, they just, you know, they're, they need pitching, so they're going to take pitching. We see that in so many mock drafts, and it's team need. And this is just so unique and so different, Joe. So I just wanted to uh, 
throw you a little cookie there because I appreciated reading this and it was uh, obviously a lot of work and good work and uh, and really really interesting. So uh, you want to do a quick little exercise here while I got something pulled up? Let's do it's it. Kind of fun. I don't know. So I pulled up my mock draft 1.0 from 2022, uh, and this was December 4th, 2021. <laughs> Okay. Um, number one pick. I'm just going to go through these and we'll kind of go with how, how it went. Drew Jones was number one to the Orioles. He went number two. Elijah Green. I'm just going to rattle them off. Elijah Green, I had two. He went like three or four. Tamar Johnson, I had three. He went four or five. Brock Jones, four. He went in the top 25. Chase DeLauder, I had five. He went in the top 20. Jace Young, I had six. He went in the top uh, top 10, I think. I can Dylan pull up. Lesko. I'll pull up the 22 draft. So when you toss out a name, I'll, I'll tell you where he went. Uh, I'm, I'll just rattle through this fast. Dylan Lesko, I had seven. He went like 15. Gavin Cross, I had eight. He went like 12. The big miss that I had here, and this was lazy. <laughs> or maybe it was clickbaity. I had Robert Moore going nine to the Kansas City Royals. I think he went in the third round of the Phillies. Oof. But Dayton Moore, Dayton Moore was the GM at the Royals. And I was like, ah, slam dunk. <laughs> I, you know, I yeah, it was six I months out, and it was six months out. So you know that's, that's the whole yeah, point. Yeah, eight, eight, almost eight months out. Um, Brooks Lee, I had ten. He went number five to the mm -hmm. Twins, I think. Brandon Barrera, I had eleven. He went twenty-three to the Mets. Brooks Lee Daniel went. Eight. Brooks Lee went eight to the Twins. Brooks Lee went eight. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, Daniel Susak, I had twelve. I think he went like twenty-two to Oakland, um, uh, right in that range. Uh, boy, I don't see him. Oh, he, he went. went to, uh, he went nineteen. Yeah, to Oakland. 19, okay. Yep. Landon Sims, I had 13. He blew out after that. Mm -hmm. He still went in the top 40, I think, to, I think, Arizona, I want to say. Yeah, it was around two. Um, Blade Tidwell, I had 14. I think he slipped a little bit because of elbow concerns, but I think he still went pretty good. I think he went in the second round. Yeah, not really. Um, two. Yep. And then I'll just I'll just rattle through these. Jacob Berry went in the first round. Noah Schultz went in the first round. Dylan Beavers went in the first or second round. Kumar Rocker went in the first round. J.R. Ritchie, I think, went in the second round but he got a ton of money he got like top 25 money uh carson wisenhunt went in the first round jackson ferris went in the second round of the cubs i think tristan smith ended up at clemson mm -hmm. peyton pellet blew out man this was an ugly year for college pitching injuries right he blew out but he went to the white Sox in the second round kevin parada went in the first round brock porter went in the second round to the to the texas rangers but he got like top 15 money because they went with kamar rocker at three mm -hmm. Walter Ford, I had at 26. He went in the second round to Seattle. Zach Neto went in the first round. Carter Young went in the 11th round. Uh, whoops. Uh, <laughs> Andrew du Andrew Dukanich went to Vanderbilt. Mikey Romero went in the, I think, the third round of the Dodgers. No, Mikey Paul Romero. Went. Mikey Romero went to the Red Sox in round one. Oh, that's right. That's right. They went underslot with Mikey. Yep. Uh, Cam Collier went in the first round to the Reds. So yep. I would say I was probably yeah. 24 of 31. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. So it's Absolutely. prescriptive in a way. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's pretty good. Interesting. That's a fun little exercise. Yeah. Good stuff there. Uh, mock drafts around Christmas time. Got to have it. This should be a yearly thing, by the way. You should just, every year, you should just post one of your mock. Even if you just got to just, just run through one, like, you know, you're busy, you didn't get to one in early December, Christmas Eve, Joe Doyle pops out a mock draft. That should just be a thing at futurestars.com, Joe. Like people love to see it. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's legitimate information. It's not just, you know, it, I guess what I'm trying to say here, Joe, is this isn't just clickbait. Let me throw up a mock draft. No, um, there's a lot of thought and a lot of research and a lot of, frankly, there's a lot of data that went into it. My model totally aside, um, I was, I was building this mock draft out and I, I tend to think I'm a pretty humble guy. 
I was looking at my top 20 or 30 for 2024. And I don't know if I've ever felt so good about my evaluations. Like I really think the top 20 to top 25 on my board is really, really going to age well. So mm. we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Excellent. Good stuff. Uh, despite the draft class, maybe being a bit down in 2024 versus a year ago, and maybe even versus 2025, every club, I like to say this every year, every club has a chance to gain ground on everyone else in every single draft, improve their farm system, uh, make up a deficit inch closer to where they want to be uh, at the big league level. Uh, check out Joe's latest mock. It's the top story right now at futurestarsseries.com. All right. Speaking of farm systems, uh, even after signing Otani, the Dodgers are buzzing around pitching like a buzzer during a zombie apocalypse. It's like everywhere you look, it's the Dodgers and Yamamoto. It's the Dodgers and Blake Snell. It's the Dodgers and Tyler Glass now. Uh, they've been linked pretty heavily to, to, to Glass now ever since the offseason started. And earlier in the week, uh, Ken Rosenthal tweeted the two clubs are working on a deal that would send Ryan Pepio and outfielder Johnny DeLuca. Pepio is a right-handed pitcher to Tampa for Glass now and outfielder Manuel Margot. Uh, Glass now is owed $25 million, Joe, for 2024. He'll hit free agency after that. Return from UCL surgery to pitch pretty well in 2023 late. Uh, reports suggest the Dodgers don't really like the idea of Margot being in the deal. Uh, he's owed $10 million for next season plus a $2 million buyout on his option for 2025. Before we do anything like remove Margot from the deal, let's just work off of what Rosenthal reported was the, the start of a deal. Is right-hander Ryan Pepio and uh, and outfielder Johnny Luca enough in exchange for one year of Tyler Glass now, uh, considering the Dodgers would be taking on, including Margot, a total of $37 million? Is that enough uh, to get Glass now from the race? Man, I don't think it is. I, I feel like in a vacuum, you could say – it may it might make some sense. Like it, Pepio hasn't been very good mm -hmm. at the big league level, and he's bounced around a little bit. And I think he just exhausted his his prospect status. And mm -hmm. and Johnny DeLuca is is interesting, but you know he was going to be halfway down um, my prospect list. Like I, I don't think he's that good. I look at it like this, Jason. The the Rays put themselves in a situation where they owe an ace who. Granted, has has durability concerns. Mm -hmm. They owe an ace twenty five million dollars a year, and they're already light on pitching. While I think Pepio helps fill that that void, I think you're kind of punting on the idea of the of the Rays winning the World Series if they move Glass now. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the type of horse that uh, wins you two games in a series in the in the ALCS or the ALDS. So, um, like talent for talent. May like you can talk however you want in that regard, but I just think the value lost here for an organization like the Rays that has to live on the fringes, who's already short of innings with McClanahan getting hurt and some other guys, mm. um, you know, falling off. I don't like it. What if I uh, what if I replace Pepio in this deal with Gavin Stone? Does it change anything for you? A little bit of a different guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Gavin Stone. He's he's going to rank quite high on on my Dodgers uh, preseason top top thirty list. I still look at like I still think you're, and maybe you're just kind of moving the goalposts to twenty twenty five. Like I have a hard time seeing Gavin Stone headline a raise rotation that takes them, you know, into the ALCS. And and, and maybe without Shane McClanahan, that's a conversation that doesn't need to be had in the first place. But 
Um, that probably moves the moves the needle enough for me to feel more comfortable if I'm the Rays. Pepio doesn't do it for me. I just don't think he's anything more than a four. I think the, the the way I'm thinking about this, like I'm trying to insert myself into the Rays position. It's like I, I'm I'm the easy way to think about this is. I need to get rid of Tyler Glasnow's number, his the dollar number, the 25. It hurts us a little bit. It, it restricts us. I can carry it, but I can get better if I don't carry it, if I if I kill it, and if I can attach Margot to it, all the merrier, and then I can go out and maybe try and find some pitching. The problem with that theory is uh, players don't necessarily – free agents don't flock to Tampa Bay. Hitters or pitchers, they don't flock to Tampa Bay. It's somewhat difficult for them to get free agents to go there. It's it's Tampa for crying out loud. And, and while you might like Florida, uh, it's not a great stadium to play in. They don't sell that place out, but they win. So I'm not saying nobody's going to go there, but it's not exactly they're not exactly LA. It's not the Dodgers. It's not the Yankees. It's not the Mets. It's not the Red Sox. And they don't exactly have tons of money, so they're not going to blow anybody away there. So the way I would think about this, if I were Tampa, is I either keep glass now and have to do everything else I want to do this winter by trade, or I can trade away glass now, not worry as much about the return. I don't need to get my next, you know, top of the rotation guy that's ready for 2024 immediately in the deal for glass now. Maybe that's that guy is someone I get trading Randy Rosarina or Yandy Diaz or something somewhere along those lines. Because you're right, they need more than one guy too. McClanahan's going to be out. And if they trade Glass now, their top two starters that they were projecting for 2024 initially, or originally anyway, are gone. And they've already had some other uh, injury issues with guys like Drew Rasmussen. So it, it seems like anything the Rays do this year should be about getting pitching in return. Uh, and it probably can't just be a bunch of prospects, right, Joe? Like, like I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe this Glass now thing is just like, one of four deals the Rays make to to land a bunch of pitching. I, I don't. Yeah, I'm with you though. I I don't really love Pepio there. I don't think Emmett Sheehan really changes the uh, uh, no. the equation there in in a deal like that. Gavin Stone's a little different. Nick Frasso's a little different. But you're probably still looking at 25 for both of those guys. Um, at the end of the day, if you, if you're the Rays and you and you can attach Margo in that deal, do you pull the trigger if it's Gavin Stone versus Ryan Pepio? I probably do. I tell you, though, the alternative for me would be I think Tampa should move Margot in a side deal for anyone that would take the money. Mm. I'm sure. I mean, listen, he's he's still probably a one to a one and a half win player if he gets the at bats. Mm. He hasn't gotten the consistent at bats. and He's been a little dinged up in Tampa. I think you could make the case that Margot is going to be worth nine million bucks this year. I would move Margot in a in a in a single deal. I would keep Glass now, and then I would probably flip Randy or Rosarena. You know, a deal that I really like for Tampa would be like would be like Randy or Rosarena, and one of their pitching prospects like um, like Marcus Johnson to Seattle for for Bryce Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think Seattle would need to kick in like Perlander Baroa. Uh, because I don't think you could get Miller for a Rosarena straight away, and and throwing Marcus Johnson in there. Uh, probably weighs the scales too much, but like that's the type of deal. That's see, that's what I would. Tampa Bay would be going into twenty twenty four with the same blueprint as Seattle. Like they would be pitching heavy. They would win games in the first nine innings and late in the games with their bullpen, and then they would just try and scratch across like four or five runs to mm-hmm. to to win the game. I I don't like this whole. Let's try and and win with by keeping a Rosarena and and moving our pitching like 
that's not the route to being competitive in 2024, if you ask me. And it's really never the route the Tampa Bay Rays have taken. Remember just a couple no. of years ago, they, they took Willie Adamas and all his control years left. And it was fairly early in the year, wasn't it, the deadline, and moved him to Milwaukee. And it looked like Milwaukee got a steal. And while I still think they did, look at what the Rays were trying to do in that deal. And that was the J.P. Fireisen, Drew Rasmussen deal uh, mm -hmm. for Adamas. And they turned Rasmussen until he got hurt into a pretty good starting pitcher for them. That's what they like to do. They're almost a, hey, yes, we love impact and we're going to try to get impact, but we can turn a guy from a, a guy that looks like a four into a into a high three. We can do that. And we'll turn a guy that looks like a, a long reliever into a viable four. Like that's what the Rays like to do. And, and bulk almost becomes part of this equation. If you're making a deal with Seattle or you're making a deal with the Dodgers, maybe you just make it all about pitching because you think you can get more out of those guys than other teams do. And they have a track record of doing that. Uh, it'd be interesting. That's going to be interesting uh, to see uh, what the Dodgers do if they're trying to get uh, Tyler Glass now and whether that changes if they do get Yamamoto. Because they obviously need more than one guy there in LA. They're, you know, Clayton Kershaw's not going to pitch till midseason. We don't, we still don't know what, what exactly what's going to happen there. Uh, Walker Bueller's not going to be ready for the start of the season. Dustin Mays had injury problems. We don't really know what he is. Lots of pitching questions in that rotation for the Dodgers. So the fact that Otani's not going to pitch until at least 2025, uh, even if they added Yamamoto, which is still a question mark. They're going to need two, three guys. And that's why at the beginning of the offseason, we were talking about Dylan Cease, Corbin Burns, Blake's. Now, anybody that was good that can pitch at the top of the rotation, the Dodgers are going to be all over. And it seems like uh, seems like that's uh, that's the case. Excuse me, if the Dodgers don't land Corbin Burns, I don't know where Corbin Burns lands. That one year of a guy, the cost of that one year of a pitcher is really difficult for some teams to see. And that might be just a situation, uh, and we'll talk about the Yankees. Let's roll this right into the Yankees conversation. Uh, they make that deal for Juan Soto. They use some of their pitching depth to get there. Do the Yankees have enough left in their rotate in their uh, farm system, Joe, to go get a Dylan Cease, to even go get a Corbin Burns at this point? Is there enough there? And I guess we got to peel off of Jason Dominguez because it sounds like they're going to count on him, you know, really early in the year, if not right off the bat, to to be a corner outfielder for them. What else do they have left in their farm system? What's the health of that Yankees farm system at this point? Well, it's kind of weird. The, the Yankees farm system is is like it's like a bell curve. There's there's a lot of guys that are here, like you know jason dominguez everson Pereira, austin wells spencer jones yorby vivas is probably going to get quite a bit of time now that he's over there from the dodgers spent well spencer jones is at double a but i would say he's a creeping up on on his promotion like his his arrival his hampton will be there five sometimes you think for jones 2025 yeah it could, i mean it could be this year I, who knows uh they're pretty deep in the outfield so probably not but um yeah like, I, I think they've got enough still if if milwaukee is willing to entertain uh, taking on some younger talent for Cor uh, Corbin Burns. I think there's a deal to be made. Like the guy that I keep attaching to Milwaukee for Corbin, uh, Corbin Burns is Will Warren. Like I think mm. you know, Will Warren pitched last year at, at AAA, I believe. Uh, and yeah, so last year he pitched to a 3.35 ERA, 149 strikeouts and 129 innings, um, 59 walks, kind of rich for what uh, Milwaukee generally types uh, tends to do. But you know, six or seven years of Will Warren for one year of Corbin Burns coming off a down year is, mm -hmm. is, is pretty interesting to me. If I'm, if I'm Milwaukee, I don't know if 
you know, New York would be into that, but you get a package of like, uh, of like Will Warren and Henry LaLanne for, for Corbin Burns. That's really hard for, for New York to walk away from. I think mm-hmm. unless they think Will Warren's immediately going to step in and be a, sure you know, be a two, a three. I, I don't see that. Seems like a stretch. Uh, Warren, uh, right-hander, uh, 24 years old. Was a uh, was an eighth round pick in twenty twenty one four pitch guy sliders his best pitch. Uh, you're talking about a mid rotation guy, probably Joe. I think a high four. Yeah, I mean he's got to bring the walks down. If he doesn't bring the walks down, he's going to kind of you know self immolate at some point. But um, yeah, I think he could be a good four. Uh, at the top of your head, Yankees have a good draft last year. Oh, so last year, you know, they got some guys that I thought were really interesting. Uh, George Lombard Jr. was a guy that I attached to Seattle with one of their three picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, barrel-chested, um, Manny Machado type of bat. Like He could be really special. He's so far away, though. The guy I loved with that draft, and we'll see what Eric Cressy can do, is Kyle Carr, left-handed pitcher. I've been following Kyle Carr since 2020 um, when he was a high schooler. A little bit on Kyle Carr. This is not, you know hurting the kid uh he was committed to tcu he i think he had a 0.0 gpa in high school so he goes to juco dominates more questions uh because he couldn't qualify to get into i don't even remember where he uh where he committed after the first year of juco but doesn't get in does another year of juco and just the most athletic mover like like he reminds me a lot of ricky tiedemann who's top prospect with the blue jays now an incredibly athletic mover on the mound up to 96. I think, I think that kid could end up being a top 50 prospect in the game before we know it. Um, despite his, you know, he just doesn't like school. So, uh, different draft. (laughs) I didn't either, man. I didn't either, man. To be fair to Kyle, Kyle, if you're out there, I don't like school either, bro. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm definitely, listen, you're in the New York Yankees organization, your third round pick, you made a shitload of money. Uh, Hopefully this doesn't demonetize Spotify or whatever we go, but Kyle Carr is going to be a really, really good pro. And I've really liked him for a few years. So I'm glad he finally got popped. Um, I will say this, like they've gone so heavy with the short porch college guys over the last few years with Jones and, and um, the catcher Uh, shoot. What's his Austin Wells. Sure. Um, it was kind of interesting to see them go with a right-handed hitting prep shortstop mm-hmm. um, and then a really athletic lefty uh, out of the Juco ring. So I like their draft. It's just very, very different. Yeah, interesting. Um, so it added a little, uh, added some some long-term upside, uh, it sounds like, at the very least, uh, into their system. Uh, I thought of that because you said, you know, you were talking about uh, Milwaukee maybe taking, you know, more long-term, you know, bigger picture types and the first guy I thought it was Lombard. Uh, Roderick uh, Arias maybe in there too, guys like that, guys that aren't going to be ready uh, for three, four years. I don't know where exactly Milwaukee is, but it doesn't look like they're going to have much of a chance to win in 2024. Uh, and if they're going to move Burns, uh, Woodruff's already gone. They non-tendered him. He was going to miss the season anyway. Um, we'll see what they do with Willie Adamas. Uh, it sounds like they're looking at 2025, 2026, 2027 at that window and probably the back side of that window. So someone like Lombard, somebody like, uh, 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 you mentioned Will Warren, he might be ready this year, but somebody like Lelaine, uh, somebody yeah. like Carr, guys that are two to three years from popping into the big leagues. That, that does seem like it's going to make a lot more sense for, uh, for the Milwaukee Brewers. Maybe, Hey, you know, you look at, um, uh, you look at Corbin Burns and all the places he could go. Uh, can you think of any teams out there 
that would want Corbin Burns that have a need at shortstop too, because I can think of a package deal that might make a little bit of sense attaching Willie Adamas to this. Uh, the team that first comes to mind for me is Boston. I, I This is unprompted. I didn't do any research on this, but I know they're looking for pitching. And, uh, you know, I don't think you can go into the 2024 season with with Rafaela as your as your ideal shortstop. And I don't think Trevor Story has any certainty at the position moving forward. So, uh, yeah, you could probably flip a deal there. I, you know, what do you think? What are you thinking? Yeah, I, I just go right back to the Dodgers. I mean, it's it's low hanging fruit, but you know who's the everyday yeah. shortstop for the Dodgers, and is that guy better than Willie Adamas? Maybe, but doesn't have the track record Adamas does. And if uh, Adamas plays well there, the Dodgers certainly have a chance to just extend him and make that trade cost. Uh, you know, they bury that trade cost if if you get Adamas for extended time. Uh, I mean, you might even be able to get Burns for extended time. Uh, it's hard to look at a deal like that and, and suggest that's not going to make sense. We'll see what the Dodgers do, but it does seem like the Dodgers hold a lot of keys. Um, Can I just say it would be kind of interesting if the Dodgers moved Gavin Lux and a pitcher to Milwaukee for Corbin Burns and Willie Adams because mm-hmm. you know Lux is a Kenosha kid too out of Wisconsin. I, sure. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting little synergy there. Absolutely, it is. Yep. Absolutely. It would give Milwaukee some guys to build up over the next year or two and either use them as they're entering their prime, uh, as the club is entering theirs and back into contention, or it would give them somebody to trade in two or three years as those players kind of creep up and crest in value. Uh, We'll see what that rebuild looks like in Milwaukee. Uh, Not really sure what to think of that at this particular point. Um, Interesting. So the Yankees, uh, let's get back to the Yankees really quick. That, that farm system, um, it's obviously not an elite farm system at this point. Um, they've had some trouble pushing some of their guys into the big leagues and getting uh, uh, getting value out of them the last three, four, five years. They end up trading some of their guys here and there. Volpe is obviously their starting shortstop, and I like Volpe enough. He obviously can play the position. He projects pretty well. Uh, he's got work to do. Didn't have a great year at the plate, but uh, there's enough there to where you buy Volpe as their, as their shortstop for the – a foreseeable future. I think we all like Jason Dominguez to some level, what he turns out to be and when that is, who knows he's coming off an injury now. Uh, other than that, it seems like for the most part, a lot of mid rotation arms or long-term guys. And if they're going to make multiple trades, like, uh, man, I have a difficult time thinking they're going to go out and trade for Dylan Cease at this point. I have a hard time thinking they're going to, I have a hard time thinking that without kind of gutting their system or using one of their top three guys that they can get Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas in a deal. Not that they need Adamas, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. if it goes beyond like a one year of Burns, if you're trying to get two years of Dylan Cease, man, I don't know that the Yankees are going to be able to compete with some of the other clubs that are out there looking for pitching and what they're uh, uh, willing to give up. And we're going to talk about one of them. Uh, here in a minute, and that's the Baltimore Orioles. I don't know the Yankees can match up. So is this really, does it kind of seem, at least on the surface, Joe, that if the Yankees don't do their starting pitching damage in free agency, it might be tough? I mean, you got to find a team that's willing to take young talent because you look at the you look at the Yankees' rotation right now, it's still incomplete. Mm-hmm. And really all they have is, is they have Chase Hampton and they have Will Warren. That's pretty much the only reinforcements that they can expect to contribute this year. Like Clayton Beater is not going to be a starting pitcher at the big mm-hmm. league level. So um yeah, I mean I think they they probably have to spend some money on the free agent market if they're gonna if they're gonna take care of this rotation. If if you could go to the Milwaukee Brewers and offer them, I just I don't think the Yankees would move George Lombard this early. Um would they take a you know would they take Henry Lalane and Kyle Carr and uh 
you know, a, more of a lottery ticket, like a Cade Smith. Mm-hmm. I had to be older, maybe. man. Yeah, I had to be older. And, I had to be older. And, and maybe they would if if they like those guys in particular and their timetable is like 2027, 2028. You, you got to think they'd consider that. If, if they don't want to send that message or that's not their plan, you got to figure they're going to want a little bit more coming back that's going to be able to play a little sooner than that. That's uh, The Yankees are in a tough spot. Uh, it's funny, Joe, and I've said this before on the show, like three years ago, I was like, man, Brian Cashman is underrated. And ever since then, I'm like, wow, Brian Cashman is so overrated. It's not even funny. <laughs> I've gone completely 180 on Brian Cashman and maybe it's not all his fault, but man, uh, you know who he reminds me of? Uh, he reminds me of Pete Carroll a little bit. He's really loyal, isn't he? Brian Cashman is a really loyal guy, isn't he? Like he'll trade a player, but he doesn't really want to. And he'll fire a manager, but only if he really has to. Like, that seems to be what's going on. There's a lot of Pete Carroll and Brian Cashman, at least on the surface there. I feel like that's been the Yankee way for the better part of 50 years, though. I mean, they don't really churn managers as much as, or general managers for that matter, over the last 30 years. I don't yeah, early, like... Early they did, because that was that was yeah, we're talking way. But since Billy 90s, Martin, we're yeah. talking about... Yeah, the yeah, 90s, yeah. But I'm talking about the last 35, 40 absolutely. years. Absolutely, yep. um, No, like... Cashman definitely was put up against up against the wall a little bit when his when his um you know payroll was cut back and and all of a sudden he had to for lack of a better way of looking at this GM uh, and all the analytics when analytics caught up to baseball I don't think everyone knows when there's a bad free agent everyone knows when there's a good free agent and everyone knows if there's a good free agent how to expose that good free agent so it's like you can't just buy the guys that are thumpers and producers uh and trade for them like you used to in the 90s that 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 advantage just doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. um and i think my interpretation of it from afar is brian cashman has just had a very very difficult time understanding which prospects he should trade i think he's afraid to make mistakes uh, in trading prospects because he's built his team around money for so long mm. that um, now having to adjust and get younger is, is it's a tough, it's a tough lesson. It's a tough, you know, lesson to learn and how it works. It's amazing that with uh, Juan Soto, a guy that's been in the league for five years, they got younger. <laughs> that just, yeah. that just goes to show how long Soto has been in the league and how young he was when he broke in. Uh, all right. We have a, we have a few minutes uh, before we got to get going here. I wanted to bring this up and we can continue to talk about this next week. And, and, and as the winner uh, moves on the Baltimore Orioles need impact starting pitching. I don't like the rotation much. That was a big reason why I didn't think they'd be able to do much at least deep into the postseason. I think that first round is pretty much a crapshoot. but after that, you have to be able to pitch, not just at the back end of your bullpen, but in the middle and your starters have to give you five, six, seven innings. And I just didn't think they had that. I think Kyle Bradish is more of a three. He was basically their ace a year ago. And they just had a bunch of mid rotation guys that I didn't really love uh, pitching in the roles that they were in. But what they seem to have in Baltimore right now is a lot of ready or near ready young players slash prospects kind of by the half dozen, at least it's the Colton Cowsers and the, the Heston yeah. Kerstads and Jordan Westberg and, and Mayo and Joey Ortiz and Connor Norby all right on kind of the fringes of the big league roster. But the O's not only have needs on the mound, but I don't imagine it makes a lot of sense for them to send a big portion of those guys back to triple a this year. You know, when it comes to the 2024 club, not that you're just going to send them away to send them away, but man, you know, if I took away, I'm going to challenge you a little bit here, Joe. If I took away Dylan Cease, now I don't, I don't see the Orioles as a team that's going to trade for a Corbin Burns. It seems like the Orioles are going to want control 
a little bit. I would think Cease maybe, but I'm going to take that one away because that's low hanging fruit. Other than Dylan Cease, do you see a potential trade match out there, a club out there that might have a young starting pitcher, I'd say with three years of control or more, that the Orioles might attach themselves to and that they might have the young hitters to go get because that seems to be where their depth is in their farm system right now. That's hitters like Kowser and, and Kerstead and Jordan Westberg and guys like that. I'll give you an arm with two years of control because I think it's an interesting match. Uh, would Houston trade for Amber Valdez? I know we've talked about it. Interesting. But for Amber Valdez, are they going to trade him, him or are they going to extend Valdez? I think for Amber Valdez for, for Kobe Mayo is a really interesting starting mm -hmm. point because I, I don't Houston, think there's, if I'm Houston, there's absolutely no chance I make that deal. Just, just me really? personally, absolutely no chance I trade Valdez for Mayo. Absolutely no chance. In fact, there's no one of those guys, not Kowser, not Kerstad, not Westberg, not Mayo, not Ortiz, none of those guys I just mentioned, not one of them. You'd have to put other players in that deal for me to trade. I mean, we're talking about one of the, what, one of the five best left-handers in baseball, two years of baseball. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would, yeah, it would take more. more, but I think, I think, I think Houston would be interested in Kobe Mayo and maybe it's a, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's Baltimore moves a guy from their rotation for for Amber Valdez. Uh, maybe, maybe it's for Amber Valdez for one of the Orioles current starting pitchers mm -hmm. with really interesting metrics and also Kobe Mayo. Mm -hmm. Who's the guy that I'm trying to think of uh, in that rotation? I'm drawing a blank on his name. You're talking about their current rotation that pitched in the big leagues a year ago. Yeah. So you're not, you're not talking uh, about Grace. You're not talking about you. No, no, Kramer. No. Okay. Yeah. I'm talking Dean, Dean Kramer and Kobe Mayo for, for Framber Valdez, or you know, I, you could try and get Bradish. I don't think you're going to get Bradish, but right, yeah, I think it would de defeat the purpose to uh, to include Bradish a little bit, even though I think Valdez is better. Bradish comes with the, with more control. Three, yeah, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there is a deal to be made though with Framber going to to Baltimore mm -hmm. and Baltimore sending back someone that can eventually replace a guy like Alex Bregman, who's getting right. older and getting more expensive. You know, they could also use some help in the outfield. They've got sure. Jake Myers, Chaz McCormick, and Kyle Tucker. And a decision to make on Tucker. They got to pay him. a decision to make on Tucker. And Jordan's not going to provide you any valuable innings in the outfield either. So, right. you know, maybe they could use a, maybe they would do a Kowser. Yeah. You know, maybe they would do Kowser and, uh, and Kramer and Kramer for, mm -hmm. for Framber that's and maybe another lottery ticket, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, the one thing the Astros probably have to think about kind of at the back of their head and with Dan Brown running the show there, you know, they're going to think like this. They got to do something about that farm system. <laughs> they got to start drafting better. They got to continue to develop. They got to start drafting better and getting quality young players in there. They've traded so many of them. They've graduated a bunch of them and used them and they've been really good players and they've traded a bunch of them away to, uh, to add to their, uh, uh, big league club and they've won two world series out of it you know it's worked but that farm system is looking too hot these days so their window is going to start closing here pretty quick if they don't do something about it really really fast maybe trading framber valdez helps them do that really interesting um any, anywhere else around the league i mean everybody keeps going back to seattle um on this one because maybe they have young pitching to trade but i think with seattle and me i don't know if you agree with this joe we haven't really talked about this Seattle has young pitching, but I just don't know that they have young pitching to trade. Like, I think that's the difference here. Like, it, they don't have a guy that's within two years of free agency. Um, Bryce Miller, trading him right now might be selling low on him a little bit in some scenarios. Brian Wu yeah. would definitely be selling low on him, uh, you know, to some extent. 
uh, trading Logan Gilbert without replacing him. You know, like Seattle went out and signed Blake Snell and then they want to trade Logan Gilbert. Okay. That's a different story. But right now, as they said, I don't know that Seattle is this trade match. And we heard the Royals checked in with, uh, uh, Seattle about their pitching. We know the Red Sox checked in with Seattle about their pitching and they keep getting turned away because Seattle really can't afford it. Is Seattle really a match with Baltimore at this particular point in time as we head into the middle of December? No, I mean, once they moved Marco Gonzalez, no, like they, they don't have the insurance to cover those innings. And, you know, Emerson Hancock, like I've said, he's a he's a porcelain vase. I, I don't think you can count on him to throw a single inning in April or May. Sure. Um, so, yeah, like unless there's a deal where Seattle could go get markedly better offensively while also replacing the loss of a guy like like a Bryce Miller, you know, I don't see it. Maybe. You know, maybe that's the Dean Kramer conversation. Mm. You know, maybe it's Dean sure. Kramer and Joey Ortiz to Seattle for. But here's the thing about that sort of a deal, though. Joey Ortiz doesn't make the team doesn't make Seattle any better. You know, not really. He's yeah. a he's an interesting little right. bouncy, twitchy guy. But it would have to be a Kowser cursed type guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not. Uh, I guess if I'm Baltimore, I make that deal because I'm a Bryce Miller fan. <laughs> But you know, I've, everybody's, I've it, asked, everybody's asking you. for Gilbert and Kirby, though, right now. That's what's going on. Well, I've told you, I, I think I told you in July or August that a Bryce Miller for Heston Kerstad and a pitcher deal, mm-hmm. I would do if I was Seattle. I, I'm a big fan of Kerstad. Seattle drafted Kerstad in 2020, 2019. They're very familiar with him. Uh, and I think he can either take up big at-bats in a corner outfield spot or he can take up at-bats at DH, first base. He's left-handed. Uh, he's a prospect, but I think with where that team currently is in terms of their payroll situation, if if you can get a Dean Kramer and a Heston Kerstad for Bryce Miller and uh, you know Prelander Baroa or something that that Baltimore would covet, I think you do it. Yeah, interesting. Seattle needs to do something. Hey, uh, really quick before we go, we're running just a little over, but uh, this is an interesting question I tackled on uh, on baseball things uh, last week or earlier this week. Uh, a deal centered around, now there'd have to be pieces in in both directions, a deal centered around Bryce Miller for Noel V. Marte. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> First of all, ironic. Oh, man. It's I, that nasty X that you don't, you shouldn't go back to. <laughs> That's the response I needed. That's it. We don't need to go any further. That's exactly what I was looking for. Uh, that is the voice of Joe Doyle. This has been the FSS Plus Podcast. We'll talk next week. So just chill to the next episode.